of God, just like when we first meet someone, the most powerful moment is the one where we hear them speak. Hear now as God speaks from his word. First scripture is Exodus 20, 13. Hear the word of the Lord. You shall not murder. Second passage is from Luke 10, 25 through 27. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, He passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, oh, sorry, so likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do Likewise, this is the word of the Lord. Before we turn to this particular scripture, I just want to, uh, so we have been preaching through the Ten Commandments here, this is week six, and as we've been doing it, I am especially mindful of a couple realities um, that I'm especially reflecting on for this week and next week's sermon, so I want to name those up front. One is that um, we are touching on a lot of hard topics, and in some ways that is intentional. The purpose of the Ten Commandments is to convict us of the reality that we break each of them and are in need of Jesus, and part of why we're taking the time to do them one at a time is because too often... Um, In preaching, I think that Christian ethics is kind of a whole discussion gets lost because you have very specific little applications. You don't have time to step back and look at the whole picture of things. But, um, But that said, we are saying lots of things that are challenging and um, in some cases that are hard for us to confront. And I am very mindful of that fact, especially in this and the next um, and the next commandment as we will be touching on all kinds of controversial or painful topics to some of us. 
Um, and so I want to name that. And secondly, I also want to acknowledge that part of why I've struggled in this series is because by the necessity of what we're doing, we are just touching on a lot of those topics, right? We're not able to give them the kind of full, deep sermon-length treatment they would deserve. And I say all of that up front just because I want to say, I, I say this sometimes, but I really mean if you have questions or struggle with some part of these, I am happy to get coffee with you or sit down with you and we can chat about that. I want to say that up front because I know that, yeah, there's just a lot of hard stuff we're going to touch on. But with that said, as a happy introduction, let's pray and turn to this text. Father, I just pray that you would be with us, your people, that as we sit under your law, we would both recognize that we failed to keep it and so rejoice in the gospel and that you would call us by your spirit to seek to grow in keeping it and so give glory to your name. Pray all of this as sinners who are convicted by your law and pray that you would be with me a sinner as I seek to proclaim it. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So it's common sometimes when people who are outside of Christianity object to Christianity for them to point to the Ten Commandments and say, I don't see why God has to say this, right? Like, why would God have to give the Ten Commandments? They're so obvious. Everyone agrees with that. And in the first place, whenever I hear that, I think, really? <laughs> like, keeping the Sabbath and not, you know, worshiping the Lord only in the ways he commands? I don't know that that's actually true for all of the commandments. But when we come to this one... This is probably the commandment that they have in mind when they say that. All of us, on some level, agree that murder is wrong. Every human ethical system, on some level, regards people killing each other as problematic. We all, in theory, agree with this commandment, but it's worth noting, if that is our sense when we read it, that even at its most basic level, human beings are terrible at keeping this commandment. All of us agree that we shouldn't be killing each other, and we often, um, as humanity, kill each other on a massive scale. Just consider this big picture list. Here's the top 15 human kind of conflicts and acts of violence against each other that caused massive deaths. That includes some wars. That also includes, you know, like programs of conquest and starvation, things like that. But things that humans have done to each other. Just look at that list for a minute. Two things strike me about it. One is that despite the enormity of those numbers, not many of us know about a lot of those events, right? I mean, I, so I studied history as an undergrad. I've like heard the names of all of those things, but I couldn't tell you still anything about like the Taiping Rebellion. Even though it happened around the same time as the Civil War and 31 million people got killed, right? Like that just happened and apparently none of us noticed, <laughs> And the second thing that strikes me about that list is a lot of those things are really recent, actually. Those have all happened within living memory of, um, of people that are still alive today, those five of the 15, including the worst of them, World War II. We modern people are not somehow more enlightened and less inclined to be violent towards each other, but it's still very much a reality of how we treat one another. And I put that up there up front because even though we're going to have to dig into more detailed discussions of the commandment as we go, it is worth realizing that even at that basic level, we as human beings are enormously guilty of doing violence to each other and harming each other's lives. With that said, though, as a kind of grim beginning, let's look at this sixth commandment and let's consider, first of all, what it says in its narrow, immediate application. The text is really simple. It's, you shall not murder. In Hebrew, it's actually just two words. 
I don't know if you've been around church or grew up in church, maybe you hear people talk about how the shortest verse in the Bible is John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. And that is true in your English Bibles, but actually in its original languages, the shortest verses in the Bible are this one and the two right after them. In Hebrew, there are only two words and six total letters. Um, and, um, and so on one level, it's very simple, but there's still a little bit to say about those words. Most importantly, that word that is translated murder is a specific Hebrew word. You sometimes hear this verse translated, you shall not kill, which is how the King James used to translate it. But that is not the right sense for this Hebrew word. Um, this word does not, it refers to specific kinds of killing. It does not, for example, ever refer to the sort of um, killing that happens in war. Um, and it doesn't refer to the kind of killing that happens when a government would execute someone. Those are different Hebrew words. And it's not the sort of general word for kill either. It's also never used to describe the killing of animals. Which is to say that murder, in the kind of like proper English sense, is actually a very good translation of this word. It's the Hebrew word for the sort of unlawful killing of human beings. The unlawful killing of other human beings. Now, I make even that clarification, and I know that everyone has questions about those clarifications, um, because we already named some debatable matters. So let's go ahead and start trying to touch on some of the ways this fits with those controversial issues. One, in the case of the death sentence, in the case of lawful executions of criminals, um, Scripture does not treat that as murder, and it is, in fact, a part of the legal code for ancient Israel. Um, crimes like murder and rape in ancient, in ancient Israel were punishable by execution. Now that in itself does not decide the political debate that people have today, either direction. There are arguments people have for and against the death penalty that do not have to do with what this commandment would pertain to. For instance, people ask questions like, is it just in a society where only poor people get executed and rich people hire lawyers and never do to have the death sentence? And that is a separate debate. But what is true from this commandment is that any argument that rests on the idea that the death sentence is sort of inherently wrong, that it's always inherently wrong to, to execute people, does run into problems with scripture because scripture seems to permit it. That's a complicated answer to that question, right? And it's the same with war. As we said, this doesn't, that word doesn't usually refer to killing in war. God does, in Scripture, command Israel to wage wars. And the New Testament gives the power of the sword to states. And Christians throughout history have recognized that um, the Sixth Commandment does not forbid all wars. Ever since Augustine, Christians have discussed this idea of just wars and unjust wars and how do we parse the difference. Um, and so this does not prohibit Christians ever supporting a war, and it doesn't prohibit Christians serving in the military. However, it, that also does not mean that any given war is justified, and again, that's where it's complicated. Um, there are wars that are unjust, and those wars are violations of this commandment. And likewise, soldiers who do things like knowingly kill civilians or surrendering opponents would be guilty of violating this commandment. But um, any general sense that this commandment prohibits all possible situations of war goes beyond, again, what scripture would allow. Although it should force us to recognize that war is a very ugly and tragic business, and we as Christians should always appreciate that and try to support those that are damaged by it, including those that we ask to fight it. 
We might immediately wonder, if we give those caveats, well then why? How does that work? If God is saying, don't kill people except in these situations where it's permissible, what's the logic of that? And the answer is that in those cases, Scripture would view that as actually expressing the value of human life. In Genesis 9, God comes and makes this covenant, this set of promises with Noah after um, the flood. And this is part of that covenant. He says, And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from every human being, too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds innocent blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. Notice the logic at the end there. It says, murder is wrong because people are created in the image of God. That's the baseline scripture position. That, um, that, that because we have God's image, because he's given us that sense of dignity and worth, it's wrong to kill people. But the logic here is that because of that, if someone murders somebody, justice, in a sense, demands um, a life for the life that person took. You can get that sense if you think about the opposite extreme. If we lived in a world where we just said murder was fine and said there were no consequences, we would all have a sense that that is a society that views life as really cheap. Um, And so we ought to recognize that. That's also the logic in Scripture of war. Like I mentioned, Christians have distinguished between the idea of just and unjust wars historically, and all of that rests on this idea of there are justified wars, and those are only the wars whose purpose is to protect and preserve human life. So, like, if somebody invades a country, that country would have a right to defend itself and its citizens to try to protect them, and that would be a justified war. But the invading country would not be waging such a justified war. If you don't feel it yet, just from touching on those first couple questions this commandment raises, it involves us in some really challenging topics. What we're going to do before we start to look outward at the principles of this commandment is we need to just touch on a few more of those topics to appreciate its immediate application. First of all, murder, the unjustified taking of human life, does not only include acts that are criminal or that are obviously violent. For example, it includes the kind of clinical violence that has become increasingly common in our day. In the first place, even at a kind of jarring level, it is easy to find ideas in the modern medical community um, that celebrate murder. The work of Peter Singer, for example, um, who's probably the most influential bioethicist of the last 30 years. Uh, Here, for example, is one of many quotes Um, He says, the notion that human life is sacred just because it is human life is medieval. Um, As a result, Singer's philosophy defends institutionalized murder of all sorts, including euthanasia and infanticide and toddler side and killing everybody with Down syndrome and other mental handicaps and killing the elderly. And to be clear, this guy is the head of bioethics at Princeton University, right? That is, not, uh, that is not some minority opinion. Obviously, that also forces us to confront the reality of abortion. But before we talk about that, I want to name two things about that. One is that in our country, abortion is caught up in partisan politics. And those of you that are here regularly know that I have no interest in engaging in partisan politics or telling people how to vote. Um, That is a matter of your conscience. 
But the problem is that abortion as an issue detached from politics is not really a political but a moral debate, right? Is it right or is it wrong? And it's the sort of moral debate that scripture does touch on. So we're going to talk about it, but before we do, the second reality I'm also mindful of is that that can be very personal for some of us, that some of us um, have had abortions and might carry a great deal of guilt or shame or pain because of that. And if that is you, um, look, as we're going to discuss in a minute, that abortion is sin. But if you hold on for the rest of this sermon, you will recognize that um, we are all guilty of sin and of breaking this commandment, um, just as we are all the others. And the truth that all of us rest on, including you, is that Jesus Christ loves and saves sinners and forgives and covers all of the sins that they have committed. Abortion is a wound and regret you will carry, and I don't mean to pretend like all of the ways we break this commandment will be equally painful to us, but um, the guilt and shame that you feel of that are paid for by Jesus, and we need to be clear about that before we discuss it. But that said, here's how scripture would address that issue. Christians who seek to follow scripture throughout history have been opposed to most abortions. And the reasoning is not really that hard to follow. Like we said, the reason that murder is wrong within a biblical worldview is because people bear the image of God. It's not some utilitarian calculus. It's not some social consensus we come up with. It's because God created human beings in his image. And so the question that we would always have to ask whenever we talk about killing someone or something is, does that person bear the image of God? And image bearing is not in scripture pictured as something that magically happens at birth. God forms us in his image from the beginning. Take these words of King David. He says to the Lord, You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Within the womb, God is knitting David together as a human being, as an image bearer. And so following scripture's logic, um, if that is true, then it is breaking this commandment. It is murder to end that life. But since that's a controversial issue, let me touch on a couple of other questions that people ask about it. The first is you will notice I said Christians have historically opposed most abortions, and that is intentional because there are exceptional circumstances, um, particularly when the mother's life is in danger, when ethically abortion would be permissible. I mean, I actually have a dear friend who, you know, they went through, she had an ectopic pregnancy and it was necessary to have an abortion because both she and the baby would have died as a result of the pregnancy otherwise. And it is important to note that up front because sometimes people just run fast past that reality. But those situations are tragic, but it is not morally wrong. Related to that, it is also common for people to want to ask about all of those messy, you know, questions. What about, you know, those questions of the mother's health or the child's health or rape or incest? And we do not have time this morning to work through all of those things because those are really hard and complicated questions. But if that's your primary issue as you wrestle with the issue of abortion, you should consider this. Um, I'm going to put up another chart. This is from the Guttmacher Institute, which is a pro-abortion health policy group. Um, and here is the main reasons they give for getting an abortion in the U.S. And these are about the most like pro-abortion ways you can parse the stats. Those are the reasons. But then here are the hard cases, right, um, that we just mentioned, if you include all of the somewhat challenging cases. And that is less than 8% of the abortions in the United States. 
So even if you permitted abortion in all of those complicated or challenging cases, we would be talking about 92% of the procedures that would be off limits. And to be clear, there are a lot of those procedures. In 2017, there were 881,000 abortions in the United States. And the good news is that number is down. In the mid-90s, it was about 1.3 million a year. But that is about, still, it's about 20% of the total birth rate in the U.S. Um, since Roe versus Wade made it illegal, about 53 million children have been killed in abortions. And if we put that in our chart earlier, it would be at number two of those times of human beings doing that to each other. And that's just in the U.S. Worldwide, about 50 million babies are aborted every year. We kill more children globally than World War I, the communist revolutions in China and Russia, Vietnam, and Korea killed each year. Two other topics about that, because I know that's a hard thing and people often ask. One is that the way that the abortion debate often is framed is in terms of choice, and it is important for us to stress that freedom of choice is a big deal, and we ought to, as we are able to, honor and preserve and encourage the freedom of choice, but foundational to biblical ethics, and really I think to any sensible ethical system, is the insistence that people's right to be alive trumps people's rights to choose. And two, it is often objected that there is something hypocritical sometimes about the evangelical opposition to abortion because it focuses only on the life of the unborn and, um, and doesn't worry about honoring and caring for life in other ways. And so the objection is raised, well, shouldn't you be consistently pro-life? Shouldn't you care about life in other ways? And if that is your question, you are correct. If people oppose abortion without caring about human life in other ways, then they are being hypocrites. The Sixth Commandment applies to a lot of other topics, which we are going to be discussing shortly. And so if that is your question, hold on and we will get there. But I will note that even if there are people that fail to be consistently pro-life in those other ways, that does not mean that you should therefore celebrate your own inconsistency on this point. We should all seek to love and value life in all kinds of ways. That said, there are a few other controversial areas we also need to touch on immediately with the commandment. One of the things people often ask about from it is what about using lethal force in self-defense? And Christians disagree about that issue, so I do not have a simple answer for you. There are some Christians who hold that the call to love our enemies means we should be willing to sacrifice our own lives. There are other Christians who feel that the call to value our life and the permissibility of self-defense in the Old Testament law mean that it is permitted. And I'm not going to decide that for you. If your question is, does the Bible let me go get my gun to protect my life? That is something you need to think through carefully, but you're going to have to arrive with your own convictions in relation to God on. However, if your question is, does the Bible let me go get my gun to protect my property, which is a very common idea in America, the biblical answer to that is certainly no. And that is a hard thing for many of us to hear. But the logic of scripture is that we are only ever allowed to take people's lives as a gesture and acknowledgement of the value of human life. And so the idea that you can kill someone for trespassing or trying to steal your car, um, that, is, that would be considered murder within the Old Testament law. Two, this commandment also applies to um, 
unintentional or careless endangering of life. One of the interesting things within the law of Moses is that this commandment gets immediately applied to people, for example, who do not provide for the safety of guests in their homes or people that work in their fields. And so that means that you know, business owners who don't you know, make the place that they work safe, they're violating this commandment. It also means that things like driving recklessly or under the influence are violations of this commandment because we are putting people in places where their lives are endangered. And then third, and this is the other really hard one, um, the sixth commandment has historically always been understood as applying to discussions of suicide, that forbidding the unjustified taking of life includes our taking of our own. But that is a topic we need to be very careful as we touch on, both because it is deeply painful and because there are these completely wrong ideas that seem to circulate in Christian circles. So first, I want to just name that wrong. One of the common questions I get asked as a pastor is, can someone who commits suicide go to heaven? There is this idea that seems very common among Christians that suicide is somehow worse than other um, ways that you would break this law or is some kind of unforgivable sin. And let me just, here's where that idea comes from, all right? Within medieval Christianity, um, people started coming up with this idea that there's two types of sin that there are mortal sins that are the really bad ones, and if you commit a mortal sin, unless you confess it, you go to hell automatically. And then there are venial sins, which are all the normal sins that people commit. And those don't work that way. And the logic in that medieval world was um, that since um, they would have viewed suicide as killing someone, which was a mortal sin, and since by the nature of the act you didn't have a chance to confess it, Afterwards, they thought that therefore you couldn't be saved. But everything I just said there is not biblical. <laughs> just to be clear, no, there are not two types of sins in Scripture, right? All of sin makes us worthy of God's judgment, and all sin is equally covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Um, and so taking your life is not different from those other sins in that way. The more important thing, though, to say about that topic um, is that our mindfulness of the reality of that challenge, particularly in our world, should make us as Christians especially vigilant to help those who are wrestling in ways that could lead to them, that could lead them to take their own lives. As we're going to get to in a minute, um, we are to be people who value life, and this is one of those areas where we need to be especially diligent about being people both individually and socially who seek to value life and fight against the things that would um, yeah, that would lead people to that place. So we should be the people that are most mindful of depression um, and self-hatred and the sorts of struggles that people have that put them in those dark places. And we should be the quickest people to embrace and come beside those who are struggling and the most present people who are fighting on those issues to, to help people that need help. All right. Like I said, that's already bleeding into something we'll come back to in a minute about our call to value life. But first, as we looked at those hard issues that are kind of immediately within the purview of the commandment, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know we've also said there are a few rules that we need to apply to each commandment because they're also meant to be expanded outward to cover a whole set of things in Scripture. So let's briefly do that. First of all, we said the first rule is that each commandment covers a category. Each um, stands in for a category of sin. So what's the category, the range of sins in the, the sixth commandment? The simple way to put it is that we break this commandment whenever 
we fail to value others as image bearers of the living God. We break this commandment whenever we fail to value others as image bearers of the living God. That if the root issue with murder is that we are destroying people who bear God's image, then any time that we would fail to appreciate and honor God's image in others, we are breaking this commandment. So first of all, this means that we break it whenever we would injure others, um, even if we're not killing them. This commandment does condemn physical threats or assaults or domestic violence or abuse. And we also break it when we do injury to others in ways that are not physical. We can attack people with weapons other than fists and knives. We can wound them emotionally or wound them relationally. Consider, for example, in the book of James. James is talking about the sins of the tongue, the ways we use our words to hurt people. And this is what he says. One of his comments about the tongue is, he says, With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Notice the problem James has there. He says the problem with using your tongue to hurt people is that they're made in God's image. He's using the exact same logic of the sixth commandment to explain why using our words to wound people is wrong. We said there's a second rule, which is that the commandments include the heart. Each commandment is not just about our actions, but also about our internal thoughts and desires. How does this commandment apply to our hearts? Well, here's how Jesus applies it. He says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Now, when we hear that, I think sometimes people get the wrong idea. The way I've kind of heard this explained sometimes in the church is like, well, it's wrong to hate people, wrong to be angry at people, because like, if you let that fester long enough, you might eventually murder them. And that's not exactly wrong in that that's one little piece of it. But, but the deeper issue is that, um, is that for Jesus and for Scripture, when we let anger and hatred fester in our hearts, of necessity what we are already doing is murdering that person in our heart. By which we mean not that we're fantasizing about violence, although sometimes we are, um, but rather that what we are doing is destroying that person as an image bearer of God. You cannot look at someone and say you are beautiful and significant and, you know, and worthy of respect as an image bearer of God and hate that person at the same time. You have to diminish that person in your heart before you can hate them. So our calling is to think of others truthfully, which means thinking of them as valuable and beautiful. Hatred breaks this commandment. And so do other such crimes of the heart, like divisiveness, racism, fantasizing about revenge, uh, envy. There are all ways that we can commit heart murder. And then the last rule, and the one we already mentioned and that I want us to dig into a little bit, is that each commandment includes the positive. The commandment includes its reverse, that as it forbids some things, it means that we're called to do the opposite. And when we think about that reality in this commandment, it means a couple of things. First of all, it means that it's important that we don't confuse inaction with innocence. The reformer Martin Luther puts it this way, and he, he always has a pithy way of saying things, but here's part of his comments on the sixth commandment. He says, this commandment is violated not only when a person actually does evil, but also when he fails to do good to his neighbor, or though he has the opportunity, fails to prevent, protect, and save him from suffering bodily harm or injury. 
If you send a person away naked when you could clothe him, you have let him freeze to death. If you see anyone suffer hunger and do not feed him, you have let him starve. Likewise, if you see anyone condemned to death or in peril and do not save him, although you know ways and means to do so, you have killed him. If you, it will do you no good to plead that you did not contribute to his death by word and deed, for you have withheld your love from him and robbed him of the service by which his life might have been saved. So people are made in the image of God. When we look at someone and recognize God's image in them, that means that we actually have an obligation to care for and provide for them. And pleading the fact that we didn't actively do anything to contribute to their harm is not enough to satisfy that obligation. I mean, it's the same logic Jesus uses at the final judgment. In Matthew 25, he pictures the judgment, and he says to the wicked, I was hungry, and you did not feed me. I was thirsty, and you did not give me drink. I was naked, and you did not clothe me. And they say, when did we ever do that to you, Lord? And his answer is, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. So it calls us to action. And that action that it calls us to is to actively bless people, to go above and beyond in caring for them. And I know of no better picture of that than the story we heard this morning of the Good Samaritan. Now, we're not going to read that whole story, but briefly what happens is this, um, this expert in the law comes to Jesus and says, well, I'm supposed to love my neighbor, but who's my neighbor? Which is totally a lawyer kind of question, right? And Jesus responds with this story. <laughs> And in this story, he says this guy gets robbed and beaten and he's laying beside the road, half dead and bloody. And along comes a priest, who should be a great guy. But the priest sees him and steps over to the other side of the road and walks on past. And then along comes a Levite, who's like an employee at the temple, who should totally help out. And he sees the guy and he steps to the other side of the road. And notice already, that's Jesus calling out inaction and the hypocrisy of inaction, right? I mean, if you asked the priest and the Levite, they would have said, like, well, I didn't beat the guy up. I didn't do, you know, I didn't rob him. I just, you know, I could have been robbed myself if I stopped and I had to get to the temple. But Jesus clearly views their failure to help this guy as a breaking of that call to love. But then along comes the Samaritan. And the Samaritans and the Jews hate each other. They are racial and ethnic enemies but um, Jesus makes the Samaritan the hero of the story. If you look in, um, starting in verse 33 of our reading, it says, A Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Notice that's how it starts, with how he sees the guy. It's not immediately action, but first he looks at this person, and the priest and the Levite saw this, like, bloody huddled thing beside the road, and the Samaritan sees this image bearer of God, this person who he has compassion on. And then how does the Samaritan respond? First it says, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. He cares for the man. He does it in a way that is gentle and intimate, cleaning and bandaging this guy's wounds, right? Getting, getting this guy's blood on him. And he does it in a way that is inconvenient. I mean, apparently the Samaritan's going somewhere, but immediately what he does is he stops and he puts this guy on his donkey and he takes him to a hotel and changes his plans to help him. And then verse 35, the next day the Samaritan took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return... I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. 
So he cares for him in a way that's intimate and inconvenient and expensive. It's the first century equivalent of like pulling out, pulling out you know, four or five hundred bucks and slapping him down on the counter and saying like, you know, keep him here for a few days and I'll be back through. And if, you know, if it needs to be longer than this, put it on my tab. Discussing this with the expert in the law, Jesus' point is to say that your neighbor is whoever you would want to care for you in this way. That's why he uses the Samaritan. But Jesus' clear intention is also to give a picture of how you should care for your neighbor. That's why he finishes it by saying, go and do likewise. Jesus is intentionally telling a story to give us a picture of what it looks like to value the lives of others. We like the Samaritans, are called to show that kind of care for the lives of the people we encounter. That is true physically, that we should call, are called to care for people. That's also true in more abstract ways, right? If someone is struggling to make ends meet, we should be willing to do the expensive work of helping them. If somebody is discouraged or depressed, we should be the ones who draw near to them, even though it can feel hard and inconvenient. If someone is different from us or even hostile to us, we are nonetheless called to get down and um, into that kind of intimacy of love and move into relationship. The big question all of us should ask when we reflect this commandment is not just are there ways we've broken it in our actions, but also how can we promote life through our actions in the place in the world that God has put me? What does it look like for us to promote and value life in the places that God has put us. Practically, when I think about that, there's always two levels that I think we should just name and try to do some things on both. One is the social level, which is to say that we can promote life by engaging with organizations or groups that are doing different good things in the community. You can go volunteer, like at the Bread of Life Food Pantry and help them in in Stillman. That, that helps folks. You can give financially to organizations like the Pregnancy Care Center or Rock House Kids that we have partnered with and support as a church who do great work trying to care for people in hard places. You can support a kid overseas with compassion. You can you know, go work in the local school district. There's all kinds of ways you can do that. But, and none of us are going to do all those things, right? But, but it is a good idea for us to think on that level we should try to do one or two of those things, each of us, to try to engage with valuing life. And then personally, we also need to consider how we do this in our private lives. Sometimes it's too easy just to name some organizations you can write checks to and act like that's the full calling. We should look for people in our lives who seem to be struggling or who are discouraged and move toward them into relationship. Invite them into our homes and set aside time on our calendars to try to encourage them. We should look for those who need help practically and then just try to help them in those practical ways, loving and valuing them as image bearers of God. So that's our calling. That's the commandment. As we finish up, I just can't help but reflect, as I do in every one of these commandments, that when we appreciate the breadth of that thing, we do recognize that all of us fail at it. Here's something I was thinking about in that regard. Um, Early in the Bible, just after Adam and Eve's rebellion, you have the story of Cain and Abel, the story of the first murder, where Cain and Abel are brothers, and Cain ultimately murders Abel, and that is the outward sin. But what's striking in the text is that this interchange happens right after the murder. In Genesis 4-9, the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? 
And Cain says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? That is a question that I think our hearts often ask. Am I my brother's keeper? And the reason that the text points that out is because the Bible's answer to that question is yes. Yes, we are. And inasmuch my heart, as my heart often asks the question and thinks the answer is no, inasmuch as I use that as an excuse to not help somebody, to say it's not my business, it's not my job, I'm actually joining in the sin of Cain. <laughs> not the outward murder of it, but the inward act that preceded it. So what do we do with that reality? Scripture's answer rests with Jesus. I mean, Jesus, when we think about this commandment, I don't know how we can think about him without reflecting on that reality of the cross, right? That act when we murdered the Lord. The cross does two things for us at once. First, it provides an example of what our attitude should be. It illustrates what it truly looks like to value the lives of others by showing us the way that Jesus values us. For example, from 1 John 3, he says, By this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but indeed in truth. So Jesus is an example, but more than that, Jesus offers us the forgiveness and grace we need when we recognize how often we fail to live out that example. All of us, when we look in the mirrors, have to acknowledge that in our hearts, if not in some ways with our hands, at least through our inaction, we are murderers. We have destroyed image bearers of God. This is our hope that Jesus himself bore our sin in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus is on the cross, being killed. His prayer is that God would forgive the ones killing him, and God does. The wounds of Jesus, wounds that he ultimately bears for our sin, are the wounds that paid the price for us. Jesus' blood paid that blood guilt that our murderous hearts deserve. His work on the cross covered our inaction in the face of suffering and pain. We have that grace, and then our calling, as that passage in 1 Peter puts it, is to die to sin and live to righteousness. As we experience Christ's death for us in love, so we are called, each of us, to seek to love the lives of others. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would comfort us with your gospel as our hearts bear the burden of this commandment. And I pray that you would encourage us by the good news that you have laid down your life for us. And I pray that you would call us, therefore, in the grace and welcome we have in Jesus, to lay down our lives to love the world. Pray all of this in his name, the one who died for us. Amen. Stand with me now as we close in song.
In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace. When fears are stilled, when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, Scorned by the ones he came to save Till on the cross as Jesus died The wrath of God was satisfied For every sin on him was laid Here in the death of Christ I live There in the ground body lay, light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again, and as he stands in victory, since curse has lost its grip on me, for I am the precious blood of Christ. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath. Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns and calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I stand. 
Friends, it is good to worship the Lord with all of you this morning. A couple um, of notes. First of all, I'll just mention this now. We've done this a couple of times, so those of you with like older kids are aware. If you know the Ten Commandments, you know that next week we'll touch on some things that some parents are not ready, you know, for their kids to be there. We have worship kids style, so that is fine. But if you have kids that are past the age of worship kids style and you'd still like them to not be there as we discuss those things, we will do so appropriately but directly. And so um, Jordan will be available to hang out with your kids if that's a concern that anyone has. Um, Also, a couple of practical announcements. You should all be VBS teachers. Yes, you <laughs> specifically and individually should. So make sure to let, let Melinda and Elizabeth know that you're going to be a VBS teacher. Um, and feel the freedom of Jesus if you don't. Um, and, there, and flower sales are also available in the back um, if you want to check in with that and get some flowers. Friends, we are God's family. He has made us in his image. And so when we look at each other, we should recognize that image. And so if you don't know the people by you especially, you should introduce yourselves to each other and go now with the Lord's blessing. In his death, our Lord Jesus Christ destroyed our deaths. In his resurrection, he restores our life. May you go in that hope until he returns again in glory. Amen.